Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I pray that as we approach um, your word to learn about uh, our enemy, Lord, that that would educate us, that we would know um, how to defeat him. Lord, we pray that um, tonight you would help us to always remember that he is a defeated foe. But Lord, that we can be captured by the enemy to do his will. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be aware of that and to move within that, Lord. And uh, Lord, that you would help us to live in the victory that you earned on the cross. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for tonight. Open the eyes of our heart that we'll see wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the Old Testament, Satan is called Satan. And that simply means an adversary, someone who is against you. Um, The New Testament also uses the word Satan. But uh, in the New Testament, we we have several different words that are used. And we're just tonight going to walk down through uh, the biblical uses of of words uh, for Satan. And we're going to... We're going to dive deeply into one or two of these texts. Um, so um, we're going to be having to move fast, so listen quickly. So in the New Testament, Satan is called the devil. In fact, the first use of the, the, the term is in Matthew 4.1 where it says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the word devil is a transliteration of the Greek word diablos, which means accuser. Satan is often referred to in the New Testament as an accuser, the accuser of the brethren. So every time you read in the New Testament the word devil used, it's someone who's making accusations, which is why I've said, um, in fact, I this week had someone come to me and say, hey, this person is... talking about this person, and there's yay yan going on about this person saying that this person's done something over here. And I, my response when the, I was told that said, that is satanic. And the person who was telling me this kind of looked shocked that I said it that way. Satan is the author of, the, of accusations against the brethren. And if we allow ourselves to be tail bearers and we allow ourselves to run our mouth and go running around and can you know what she wore or did you hear what she said that kind of thing you're allowing yourself to be used by the enemy don't participate in that sort of thing if you find a brother or sister at fault the bible is super clear with how we're supposed to deal with that if you find a brother at fault, you go to him and him alone, and you talk to him about the issue. You point out the issue person to person. If we could just do that part of what the New Testament says, 50% of all church arguments would disappear. Because I cannot tell you the number of times when it's gotten to the point that people were sitting in my office because they had yayed about each other for so long, and as we talked out what the issue was, it was all a misunderstanding. Well, I thought you were trying to say this. Well, no, that's not at all what I was trying to say. I was trying to say this. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't know that. And in the the background of all that, everybody else has gotten upset. People have taken sides. The devil is really smart. But remember that his very name means accuser. So if somebody comes to me carrying gossip, usually what I say is, have you gone to them? 
And, and it's always surprised me how pe- adult human beings will tattle on each other. People will come to me and say, I was in the, I, I've had this happen. I was in this restaurant the other night, and did you know that one of your deacons ordered a beer? Because I saw him. And I say, have you talked to him about it? If this is an offense to you, if this is an issue, you need to sit down with him and walk through why, biblically, you think this is sinful behavior. But you don't need to be running around yeah yeah about it. Now, I used a, fra- a phrase in my prayer that, that may have taken you aback a little bit, and we touched on this during the Q&A time two weeks ago about, I was asked, can a person be possessed by a demon? And so in 2 Timothy 2, we have this text. And I will say, uh, I have a copy of this text framed over my desk. And I look at it frequently. If your eyeballs could wear out a text, this one's worn out in my Bible. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Hmm. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So here we have Paul exhorting young Timothy. As a leader, people will come against you. You know, anytime you make a decision about anything, somebody's not going to like it. That's just the reality. No matter what job you are, if you are the chief bottle washer or a janitor somewhere, you're going to make somebody mad because you're not janitoring the way that they think you should. And so, in, in any kind of spiritual leadership, people will be offended. They'll be hurt because a particular decision will, is made. And sometimes they handle it maturely, and sometimes they don't. My natural reaction... When someone comes against me, I was trained uh, re- and repeatedly drilled into me that whenever you're ambushed, you turn and fight through the ambush. You don't run from an ambush, you turn and fight through it. Because if you run from it, there's probably somebody over here waiting on you. And so, the, it was drill, as my whole life has been drilled into me. If somebody attacks you, you attack back harder. That is completely contradictory to what this text is saying. In that... If a person attacks me, that person is not my enemy. According to this text, if they're doing something sinful, they have been captured by the enemy to do Satan's will. They're a victim. They may have allowed themselves to be snared by the enemy. They may have brought things into their life that got them to that point. But they are captured by the devil. And I'm given very specific things that I'm required to do. The Lord's servant must not be argumentative or quarrelsome. I don't like that that's in the Bible. My natural... I've been more than once in my life been in in situations and had somebody say, Oh, I don't like conflict. And my response is always, Oh, I do. I like it. I like the way I like the way the mental battle feels. I like to be challenged. I like it when people are loud. I don't know what it is about me, but I like it. And you know what? That can be sinful. That can be wicked. 
I'm specifically commanded not to be argumentative. Don't be a quarrelsome. Don't be a jerk. But kind to everyone. Able to teach. Which means that if somebody is doing some, some sinful behavior and it's coming against this church or against me or against whatever, that my response is not supposed to be to argue with them, but to lovingly teach them. And the first step to teaching anybody is to listen. Because you have to know what they're actually saying. And I don't like to listen. My natural tendency when somebody's talking to me is figure out what I'm going to say next. And you don't hear anybody if you're sitting there thinking, now once he finishes this, I'm about to tell him exactly what he needs to hear. Because what he needs is a big old dose of Tom Harrison. Patiently enduring evil. That is very tough. Correcting, so you're not just letting things that aren't supposed to be happening go, but you correct with gentleness. If I had been obedient to this text, I would have never been fired from Ransville Chapel Baptist Church. I was living sinfully, and I was responding to something that was bad. Racism is evil. It's wicked. It's an affront to the Imago Dea. But my response to their sin was just as sinful and just as wicked as their original sin. Jojo and I were talking about this verse uh, on Tuesday, and he said, I'm glad that it says may. God may perhaps grant them repentance. It's my responsibility to love them, to correct them, to pray for them. It's not me that brings someone to a point of repentance. That's God's work. I'm not trying to convince anybody, which is why I believe with everything in me that a pastor's authority begins and ends with the Bible. My opinion about what kind of truck we should buy is immaterial. My opinion and my teaching about making sure that we do the purchase of a truck in a biblical, upfront, transparent fashion, that's my job. But picking it isn't. Pick any subject. I don't get to fight for my way. You don't get to fight for your way. Our job is to lovingly work with people because people are more important than stuff. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty to God to the pulling down of strongholds. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness in high places. People are never the enemy. And the enemy that we have is great. But as Martin Luther so well put it in my favorite hymn, one little word will fail him. So, uh, a Christian can be captured by the devil to do his will. If you're like me, that verse scares me to death. And that means that we have to be checking our behavior against the Bible to make sure that we're not doing the enemy's will then there have been a multitude of times when I have been ready to go to war about something and the Holy Spirit says, you need to sit down and shut up. So, and that great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he has, was thrown down to the earth. So here we see him called both the devil and Satan. There are some unscriptural traditions 
that teach that the devil and, is, and Satan, because those are two totally different words, are different people. This text will not allow us to believe that. Uh, I, I think I mentioned in a sermon a few weeks ago that there's a, there's a book that someone gave me or put, sat on my desk that was, you know, 500 things that you thought were in the Bible that, that are not. And one of the, the things that this book pro- tried to say is not in the Bible is that Satan was the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve. I'm sorry, Mr. Author, who wrote this book. You're mistaken because this text makes it very clear who that ancient serpent was. And it was the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. In fact, that segues us to the very next term that's used throughout the Bible for the enemy is the serpent. In Genesis 3.1 it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? In 2 Corinthians 11, it says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you accepted, you put up with it ready enough. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, well, we don't believe in, a, 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 in another Jesus than the one that the Bible presents. But I will tell you that the devil's smart enough to where sometimes we do. I've had people say, the Jesus that I believe in would never send anybody to hell. There's a book that was published that's called Love Wins, and that's exactly the premise of that book. That Jesus is a loving man. He would never send anybody to hell. Well, the Jesus the Bible tells us about talks more about hell than he does about heaven. And wouldn't you, if you were a loving person and you knew someone was going to hell, wouldn't you open your mouth and warn them of the wrath that's coming if they don't change their life, if they don't grab hold of that gospel? So Jesus believed very strongly in a hell. So if you want to say that your Jesus wouldn't say that, then your Jesus isn't the Jesus that we're talking about in the Bible. If we try to recreate Jesus in our own image and try to make him the thing that we imagine him to be, one of the things that I I, I have said in our staff meeting several times, wait, wait, we need to be careful because that particular action is going to give the impression that we think that Jesus is a white middle class Republican. And that ain't biblical. And so we need to be careful with what Jesus we're talking about and make sure that the Jesus that we worship is the Jesus of the Bible, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because we can create little idols. And I would say in the South, the most common Jesus is what I call the pocket Jesus. He's not really worried about what I do. I can keep him in my pocket. I can do whatever I want to do. Didn't have any impact on the way that I live my life. I don't think about him when I'm buying a house, when I'm buying a car, when I'm doing this, when I'm doing that. When some trouble comes, though, I can dig deep in my pocket and I can pull him out and go, we just need to pray to Jesus. Well, that's an idol. That's not the Jesus that God sent down God incarnate. That's an idol you've made up. Because Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. But just a few verses later, he said, judge righteous judgment. 
The difference is, is I'm not supposed to be judging people and implying that I'm the one that makes a decision about whether they go to hell. But Jesus makes it very clear that we're to watch people and watch what their fruit is and make sure that we protect ourselves. So Jesus is a very loving person. In fact, he's the most, he is love incarnate. He left the, the splendors of heaven and came to this earth. But at the same time, he had some very harsh things to say. Jesus stood in front of a group of religious people and for three chapters says nothing to them but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. You're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. That's not a kind, loving sounding thing. But what they needed to hear was that very thing. And so we have to be careful that the Jesus that we worship is not the Jesus that's being whispered in our ear by that serpent. In Revelation chapter 12, we read this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years was ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. And we know that the devil and, and, and hell are cast into the lake of fire after this. We fight against a defeated enemy. John Piper uses the analogy of a great serpent that head is cut off, but the tail is still flailing around and can hurt you. We know, as we talk about the devil, he has been defeated. The very first messianic prophecy came in the book of Genesis where God said to Eve from your or said to the serpent, Your seed will bruise his heel and he will crush your head. And on the cross his head was crushed. We fight against a defeated foe. One of the things that he's called is Beelzebul. And that's a, a, a weird <laughs> A weird little term. Um, you can see if you look at the words there that it, it, you have Baal in it. And you have that U-L at the end which is uh, the same ending that's used for God often. And so it's, it's translated often in your Bible as uh, Lord. And so it's actually the, the head or, or over the God Baal. Um, but in the Hebrew Old Testament there was a play on words. Um, apparently that his uh, title of Lord of Baal was intimidating, and so whenever the prophets, uh, Ezekiel especially, spoke of him, he he put a twist in the word, and it's Beelzebul, which actually means Lord of Flies. Um, And so that's a little, little, uh, little language pun that's going on in the Old Testament, that he sounds like a big intimidating person, but really he's just irritating, and the, well, all he's lord over is, is flies. And Jesus, this is one of the terms he liked to use to refer to Satan. Um, and we see it best uh, when he's accused of using Satan to cast out Satan. And so in Luke chapter 11, we read this story. Now, he, and it was Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man said, spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Now, isn't it strange? Here's this guy who couldn't speak, had a demon in him, 
Jesus cast the demon out. Now the guy can talk, and there's still people looking for a sign. And so it, it, that's always amazed me that throughout the New Testament, Jesus would be doing stuff, and people are like, well, show us something else. That isn't good enough. Which is why, in the story of rich man and Lazarus, Abraham says, even if a man were to raise, be raised from the dead, your brothers aren't going to believe him. If they don't believe what the Bible says, they're not going to believe somebody even if they're raised from the dead. So here Jesus is doing miracles in front of people. He's literally casting out sickness out of the nation of Israel just by walking up and touching people. And people are still saying, hey, we need some sort of sign. Hey, can you make this dollar disappear? Good kind of thing. It's just silliness. Well, anyway, so some of the people were saying, well, he's actually casting out the devil by using Beelzebul, the prince of demons. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, and again, who knows somebody's thoughts? I mean, that in and of itself should show him his divinity. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? You say that I'm casting out demons by Beelzebul, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divided his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. What Jesus is essentially saying here is, if I can walk up to a guy who's demon-possessed and with a word cast out the demon, clearly I'm more powerful than him. We're not in league with each other. In the book of Acts, we see the story of these seven sons of Sceva who tried to cast out demons. They weren't believers. And so they, they saw that there was opportunity to make some money, and so they thought they would cast out demons too. And so they went up to a demon-possessed guy and said, Hey, I cast you out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the, demon, the demon-possessed man looked at him and said, Paul, I've heard of. Jesus, I know. Who are you? And you can hear the ice run down their backs. And then the Bible has one of the funniest stories in the New Testament says that he beat them naked. I don't even know how you do that, but this demon-possessed guy beat them naked. I, I, I've joked before that, you know, I, I've, I've seen fights uh, and people argue afterwards on who, who won. Well, you know, I, I got a good lick on him. Well, I got him down on the ground. Well, if you've been beat naked, you lost the fight. Guaranteed. <laughs> I'm just saying. So these guys were beat naked. But my, the, the point that I want us to see, though, is that Jesus is, is using this term and he is saying that I am stro- clearly stronger than this demon. Again, we serve a Savior who is more powerful than the devil. One of the terms that's used is the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 2, 2-3 through says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It is this prince of the power of the air who's directing sinful behavior. Paul is saying all the stuff that we used to do when we lived in the passions of our flesh, 
When we were doing what, and I'm air quoting here, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. You're not doing what you want to do. You're doing what the prince of the power of the air is directing you to do. He's manipulating you. He's playing a game with you. You're being played. You're being suckered. Because when sin is complete, it brings forth death. And what the devil does year after year after year is repackages the same tired, old, stale sins and makes them look new and fresh and exciting. But once you get the wrapping off, it's still the same old, tired, deadly thing. We've talked about this before. The devil leads us. First, something seems exciting and fun and new. I'm just going to party a little bit. And the next thing you know, it's led you down the Penrose path to death. He's referred to as the evil one. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. And this is what was sown along the path. Jesus tells the parable of the sowers. We've all read it where uh, a broad, somebody's broadcast uh, planting seeds. Some of it falls on good soil. Some of it falls on hard packed down soil. And Jesus in describing what that, that parable means. Says that when someone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. That devil, the evil one comes and snatches it away. You know, right now, as I'm, as I'm thinking of this, I, there's just a, a cascade of images of people's faces that are running through my mind that at some point, I'm sharing the gospel with them, and they're so close. Tears are in their eyes. They're, they're so close to getting saved. And I'll pray for them and leave, and then come back a week later, and they'll say, you know, I've been thinking about this, and the devil's give them all a, another list of reasons why they don't need to turn to Christ. The devil's smart. He comes and whispers in people's ear. And he snatches that gospel away. Sometimes he uses Christians. I would say probably one of the more common things that people say to me is the reason why I'm not interested in church or the reason I'm not interested in Christianity is because that church is so full of hypocrites. Now that's an easy argument to, to argue back to. And say, well, that's kind of like saying you're not going to go to the gym because it's full of fat people. Yes, everybody's a hypocrite to some degree or the other. I'm a hypocrite. We can't all live up to the standard that the Bible gives us. That's why we go to church. So we can be strengthened in spirit so we can change and become more like Jesus. Yes, I'm a hypocrite. I need to not be and i got to work to get to that point. But at the same time, I've heard example after example after example of Christians who go to church and sing songs and act all spiritual, and then on Monday act like the devil. Well, the devil's smart enough to use that in people's life to keep them from saying, why would I be interested in doing that? If we are Christians and we walk around with a Jesus fish on the back of our car and every time anybody sees us, we're just in a foul mood, why would anybody want to follow after that Jesus? I was kidding with, uh, Ann and I are, are doing some uh, marriage counseling and and uh, we, the husband and wife were kind of talking about, well, I'm a glass is half full empty, and I'm a glass is half empty, a half, glass is half full person, and I'm a glass is half empty person. And I joked and said, well, you know what, if I'm just left to myself, I'm a, 
uh, neither half empty or half full. I'm a, who left this glass down here? That's me. Can somebody be pick up after yourself? There's this half empty cup in here. Or half full, whatever you want to call it. But clean up your mess. And if that's the way that we act and that's what the world sees, why would they be interested in our Savior? I had someone uh, yesterday tell me a story about their mother who uh, is, is never been interested in the gospel. And this guy's a, a preacher, and his own mother has never been interested in the gospel because when she, uh, in the 50s, hit her daughter died of a heart ailment at three, and several people in the church said to her, you know what, if you weren't living in some kind of secret sin, God wouldn't have taken your baby. And, and I hear those stories, and I want to go back in time and get in somebody's face and say, are you really that stupid? In each one of those cases, that person is being used by the devil to pluck the gospel out before it can take root. So don't do that. Don't be that person. And the only way we can keep from doing it is by praying without ceasing, being in the Word, surrounding yourselves with brothers in Christ. Because in your flesh, you're going to be that person. In my flesh, I am that person. And there are some things that push my buttons, and I just, I, I'm thankful that I have a wife that's really good to say, hey, it's, there's something more important than whether or not they got your order right. Or there's something more important than whatever it is that I, you know, you get this upset about the fact that they don't understand how to use a merge lane. How hard is it to use a merge lane? It's long, it's all, it's all shaped that way, so you can just speed up and pull right out into traffic. And for some reason, every, every time on the East Gadsden Bridge, people get right there and they'd stop. And I, everything in me wants to get out of my car and be like, well, you go! Which is more important, the three seconds that I lost waiting behind them or the fact that they see me with North Glencoe Baptist Church on the back of my truck going... <laughs> We've talked about this before. Um, I have in my office a... a, a a big fat folder of business meeting notes. And I have, I've read through those, and I've read about some of the discussions that were had in this church body, and some of the names I recognize. And I'm like, oh, well. And people absolutely going after each other's throats about stuff that was done at the old church building. And it's almost humorous to read it now because... They're fighting about whether or not we're going to spend $10,000 to buy a mat to go down in the gym and to buy some chairs to go in the gym. And there's people who are saying, no, that's a waste of money. We don't need to do that, this, 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 and this. And I'm reading it now and going, these people are absolutely upset with each other, and we don't even own the building now. The building wasn't important. Those people's relationship was way more important than whether or not we put down a mat in the gym and put down some folding chairs. And we, it's so easy for the devil to lie to us and make us forget that people are is what the business of the church is about. We get all wrapped around a hub and we wrap our silly arguments with Bible verses taken out of context so that we can get our way about something that ultimately doesn't matter. And people around us are going to hell and the devil's just laughing because we've been captured by him to do his will. He is the evil one. Same phrase is used to 1 John 2.13. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome 
the evil one. We can be overcomers. We are not bound for him to win in your life. And I'm going to hammer the point home with one, one more text. Uh, Jesus says to Peter, now notice it says, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not on the side of God, but of men. Jesus is recognizing that Peter's telling him, now imagine the arrogance of this. Jesus tells them that he's going to go to the cross, and Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, no, man, you don't need to be saying that. He says he rebukes Jesus. How arrogant do you have to be that the guy who you said, I will follow you, and he walked away from his family business after Jesus made the nets filled, put the nets out on the other side, and they filled up. So he knows who Jesus is, and yet he feels the need to put his arm around Jesus and go, Jesus, let me tell you how it's got to work out. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, you get behind me, Satan. So we see here, again, a believer who is allowing himself to be used as a tool of Satan. So if you juxtaposition 1 John 2.13, we can overcome the evil one. We know that's, that's not something that we just go, well, there's nothing I can do. Just do whatever, because Satan's going to control me sometimes. No, we fight. And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And he's a defeated enemy. Father God, Lord, I pray that you will help us to look to you to defeat our enemy. God, I thank you that we, we have examples of, and we're told exactly how to participate in spiritual warfare. God, I pray that you will guide this discussion. Lord, I pray that you will, as we um, move forward in this study, Lord, that you will show us how to be victorious in our Christian walk. In Jesus' name, amen.